in the various teachings and instructions that Jill and I have been offering, we've really emphasized much of the time the way that that our practice is uh, rests on a quality of balance is a process of exploring and developing and finding balance. And I was as I was looking over the notes that I put together for the talk and thinking about what I was going to say, I the sense that feels like pretty much everything we say is is somehow addressing this this movement towards balance. And as a meditation teacher, when I meet with people on retreats like this, mainly I'm looking for some sense that, that there is a balance, a balanced approach to practice, a sense of balance of energy and tranquility and, and different ways that balance, that there's the mind and heart are in a place of some, some balance, relative balance. And Jill spoke about some of the different ways that we um, we explore this in our practice. Um, in great part, talking at in one of her earlier talks about uh, seeing, learning about balance in terms of our effort and energy that we bring to practice, and and this sense of finding relaxation as as a balance to that finding a balanced effort, ways, different ways that this might show up. We can see this in all kinds of ways. We see there are mental factors or qualities that tend to bring energy and others that tend to bring calm. We need to find a balance between, you know, having a realistic assessment of our own internal world and the um, power of the habits of mind that are operating there, balanced with just seeing ourselves as this huge problem that has to be fixed somehow. We have to find balance between actually opening to the truth of suffering, the noble truth of dukkha in our own mind and the world, and... and uh, falling into states of despair and defeat because of the magnitude of that sometimes seems so huge. And so the entire path really can be seen as this movement towards greater and greater balance. And we could see the Buddha's realization as the culmination or the perfection of this quality of balance and we can see the mind of an enlightened being as the mind that rests in a state of uh, profound and deepest possible kind of balance, an unshakable or unassailable kind of balance. I want to read a few lines from a verse from uh, the Teragata, which is a collection of poems um, from the in this case, there are two collections. I may have mentioned this. Uh, forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But there are, uh, are two collections of verses and poems that were written by the monks and nuns who were uh, disciples of the Buddha at the time and, and near the time of when he was uh, teaching and living in India. Uh, the Terigata, or the verses of the 
the nuns and female elders and the teragata, the male monks and male elders. And uh, there's some beautiful poems in there. Sometimes I like to give, uh, I have a, like to give a talk and speak about uh, and read some of the poems from the nuns, especially. They're very beautiful, and a lot of them uh, give very clear descriptions of uh, moments of realization that are quite beautiful to read. This is a short few lines from a verse in the Teragata. If your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. I like this this simple verse and and the f- I love the fact that it points again as we have been speaking on the retreat about the possibility that we might discover, cultivate a mind that is our true friend, our greatest friend. Now in this this line, the mind firm like a rock, you know, what, what is that? Because a rock might give us an image of something that is hard and um, immobile, not necessarily the best <clears throat> image. At time. I think it's a good image, but it could lead to thinking, oh, it's just uh, hard and un- unfeeling and uh, immobile. But I think it really points more to the the weight and stability that one might find in a rock. Um, and combined with really uh, an ability to receive things, a non-resistance, resilience, a steadiness that rests on a profound acceptance of the truth of the way things are. So the rock can receive whatever comes, not moved. So a kind of sense of not of of not immobility, but a sense of unassailability there. And so the firmness of a mind that is not shaking, we could see as um, a way of speaking about the mind or heart that is imbued with the qualities of, uh, with the quality of equanimity, a, a mind resting in a state of deep and profound balance. This quality in the word equanimity is uh, one of these words that shows up on a lot of different lists in this tradition of lists. And it's, uh, we've mentioned it as one of the Brahma Viharas. It's one of the, uh, what are called the seven factors of awakening that we've spoken a little bit about and probably will touch on, uh, more more um, <clears throat> intentionally and directly. It's one of the list of the ten paramis that I spoke about in my talk on patience. And equanimity is also uh, considered to be one of the stages of insight in a particular model of looking at practice as the unfolding of the progress or stages of insight. And probably on other lists that I'm not thinking of right now. So it's, it's a real... Um, it's very widespread and, and important um, sense to get some sense of this. It's important in this tradition. 
in many ways everything comes to this, the balance of equanimity. And it's this pointing to this openness to experience, a balanced kind of openness that, um, is not, uh, that avoids or is not, um, keeps us from falling into, uh, extremes of reactivity. You can navigate the changes that come in life without falling into the extremes of resistance or grasping. And it's powerful in its own right, but it also uh, supports and strengthens many other qualities. It's it's a, a primary support for a clear seeing and for wisdom, because when our mind is not shaking, when the mind has this a sense of strength and, and stable firmness, not rigidity, we can actually... Uh, rest with the truth of things long enough to see below the surface and for uh, the deeper insights to actually arise. We can remain uh, in a somewhat stable relationship to what's, what's, what's happening. We can rest in the moment just as it is. So it forms the basis for seeing into the conditioned nature of life, for example, which is an aspect of, of insight and clear seeing. We have enough space, enough stability to see that things are arising due to causes and conditions. They change, pass away when those conditions change. And this, in turn, opens up enough space that we don't take everything so personally. We see it's a flow of cause, it's a causal flow, conditions coming, falling away. Equanimity is one of the Brahma Viharas, but it also forms the basis for all of the Brahma Viharas, and we've spoken about this. I'll just mention a few, uh, mention it a few, a little bit more in terms of, of, uh, how that works. So it's, it's equanimity that keeps all of the, keeps kindness and compassion and joy from falling into the extremes of what we've, what we've spoken about as the near and far neighbor or near and far enemy. So it helps us actually connect with the wish that all beings have to be happy, even those who seem to be doing the very thing that brings suffering to themselves and others or are caught in self-destructive patterns. We see that there is underneath that a being that wishes like us to be happy, but may be very, very confused about what would actually bring happiness. So it's equanimity that gives this quality of metta, the 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 possibility to actually wish happiness and well-being to all all beings, no matter what. It's it's the quality that fosters courage within compassion, so that we can actually show up in a with enough balance to be with with pain and suffering when that's there. That allows us to act when there's something we can do, makes it possible that we can actually. Uh, stay and be with it and hold it when there's nothing we can do. It allows us to name injustice and respond and take actions to alleviate it if we can. And when there's nothing we can do, we don't falter or withdraw or fall into uh, some states of reactivity. It keeps the quality of joy that uh, we've been... uh, looking at in the guided meditations and that uh, Jill spoke about so beautifully the other night. 
keeps that from falling into the overly uh, giddy, overly exuberant states that are self-absorbed states, not connected states. Gives us the ability to see that um, the joy and good fortune that others experience is not somehow a limitation for us, that there's not a limited amount of, of good fortune and joy to go around. It brings a confidence. We see that the other's goodness does not in any way diminish our own potential. I found a very uh, interesting article on the subject of equanimity that was written by the teacher Gil Fransdahl, who we, for some reason, we're both uh, referencing him quite a bit, this retreat. And he spoke about two different words in the Pali language that can be translated as um, equanimity. And they're, they're, they have very different, they're related, but they're also very different, um, point to two different, really different aspects of this quality. So the first one, and the one that we use for the Brahma Vihara, and uh, in many other cases that's most um, most familiar to us is the word upeka, the Pali word upeka, which literally, Gil says, means something like to look over. And um, he speaks of this as the kind of uh, equanimity that arises when we're able to take a, a broad view of things. Um, the power of broad observation, you could say. Kind of stay, taking a step back and not getting so lost in the minutia of, of uh, things. We could think of it as the ease from, we take, we see a bigger picture. We have a bigger frame, a bigger frame of reference. And he, he compares it to what he calls grandmotherly love. We can think of this um, as uh, this image of a grandmother who clearly loves her grandchildren, but because of her own experience in raising her own children, is less likely to get swept up in the drama of the, her grandchildren's lives. Maybe has has a, an ability to take a broader view than uh, than her daughter would with or son with with their kids. And so when equanimity strengthens, we can take this broader view and we don't get so swirled up and embroiled in the details of what's happening in the minutia of life. It's not that we're disconnected, but we're not so swirled up in all that and all the, especially the world of our thoughts and emotions and, and all the apparent issues that seem to be there that we might feel we have to somehow solve and figure out to take a broader view. And then there's the second word, which um, is one of these, in this language, there's a, often words are constructed by sticking shorter words together. There's lots of nice, long, many-syllable words. This, I like the sound of this one. It's tatramajatata. So tatra means there, or also all of these things. Majja is, for those of you who've looked at the collections of the suttas, there's the majjima nikaya. Majja means middle. And uh, tata, 
the word tata means something like to stand or to pose. So when they put together, it means literally something like to stand in the middle of all this or all these things. And it's this kind of balance that has, that is, um, the ability to remain centered in the middle of everything that's going on. You could say it's, um, it's a centeredness that comes from an inter, inner internal strength and stability and that uh, is based or infused with qualities of calm and integrity and confidence. And it keeps us upright through life's changes. It's like the keel of a sailboat is what allows the boat to stay upright in strong winds. When I was living in San Francisco, I mentioned uh, in, I think, my last talk that I used to live in San Francisco in my, when I was very cool and a younger time, blasting around on my vintage motorcycle and so forth. And I was living for part of that time, a long period, I lived in an old uh, converted fire station building that had been built um, it was old enough that they used to use horse-drawn wagons there. And the back part had a place where they used to have a hayloft and and a uh, place for the horses. And it had a tower that they used to haul the hoses up into. And it was um, it was a very interesting, uh, it was a cool place to live. It suited my, my coolness uh, criteria very thoroughly. And in fact, I remember... I was once on a flight back from India or Burma and I was watching sometimes they, I watch, like to watch movies on those long flights and this, I'm watching this silly movie, but I was looking and I said, wow, that, that looks like where I used to live. And then they showed the outside and it was where I used to live. <laughs> they had, you know, gotten it. I didn't own it. They used it for the, this movie set and it kind of redone the inside, but, it had been fixed up and changed, and, but it was, um, I don't know why I'm going on and on about it, except my landlord, who <laughs> owned the thing, part of why he bought it and he rented it to, because um, he was building a, a 40-foot sailboat right there, and he had it propped up against the side of the building, and he, he, he worked on this thing for about 10 or 12 years, and his working full-time on the weekends, and um, he just, he bought the hull, but he was doing everything else. And at one point, he was filling the keel. It's the keel, that's what I'm getting at here. He was filling it with weight. And I had never really, I didn't really think about sailboats and how they work. But he was recycling lead out of old batteries and getting heavy stuff <laughs> to put down in the keel to make it really, um, to, to balance the mast. And, you know, I'm sure some of you are sailors, but those sailboats can lean way over because they have this uh, keel down in the water. And so this Tatra Majatata points to that kind of, there's an inner stability and strength, not a heaviness of weight in our case, but um, this, is, this is an aspect of equanimity, this inner strength. Uh, one of our colleagues... Uh, Jill and I sometimes teach with, we'll be teaching with this fall, named Winnie Nazarko, uh, had a very, a really great image that I, I want to borrow tonight for, um, this talk about, um, 
that, that really points to some essential characteristics of and qualities of equanimity. She spoke about it in terms of a skilled surfer. Are there any surfers? Anybody here is a surfer? Yes? Or tried it at all? We've got one at least. Two, three. Okay. All kinds of surfers here. Well, I, I like to body surf, but I've never been a, on a surfboard. But I've seen a lot of surfers. And a really skilled surfer, they have this incredible, you could call it kind of a fluid responsiveness to changing conditions. You know, a surfer is like really intimately connected with the wave, right? They're right in the wave. So there's a, they're directly and intimately connected with the moment in that. But they, they have to bring us this very, flexible and um, relaxed and centered response to the changes because the wave is, it's moving, right? So if you're going to ride a wave, you have to be in a place of of uh, deep connection and flexibility and responsiveness. So it's not, if, if you're rigid and tight, you're going to wipe out, you're going down. So they're not resisting the wave, they have to flow with it but there's a, a spacious, uh, flexible, there's a stability with this flexibility. I think it's a great image. I was visiting one of my friends um, in California, and his, this is a few few years ago, his teenage son had this um, board, and it was kind of the size of a big skateboard, and the shape and size, and it, it went up on the ends a little bit, and it, Maybe some of you have seen a thing like this. It rested on a, a cylinder um, that that it could move back and forth, but there were blocks so it wouldn't completely shoot off the ends. It, it would stop it, but it moved back and forth on this wooden cylinder. And it was um, I th- it was actually developed by a champion, an Olympic uh, snowboarder, and it was a. Um, something that you would use to develop balance and good for strengthening the joints. And so I, my friend's son had this thing, so I decided to try it. And I, I moved it near the wall <laughs> so I could get up on it. And, and at first I was trying to find that place in the middle <laughs> where it would be balanced and kind of hang out, stay there. And, you know, I'd see my friend, and he, my friend's son, he's a 16, he could just hang out on that thing and be texting his friends, and it was like, no deal at all, you know, and I'm getting up there trying to do this. And then I realized, oh, it's not about finding that one point, that fulcrum. It's about relaxing, bending my knees, lowering my center of gravity, letting my focus get soft and keeping moving, responding. That's, and when I, when I did those things, I could actually start to do it. It was a really great um, sort of um, not just pointed to this this kind of uh, flexible stability, but that inner core. And you might have noticed this. Now I'm trying to point at it in when I'm teaching the qigong that it's that um, stability of of grounding into the earth in the standing posture that allows us to then move um, out from that. In some of the pa- some of the parts of it that require some uh, ability to be balanced, I'm going to mention a few things that are uh, 
might be helpful in exploring and coming to understand equanimity, um, I think it's useful to point at some of the things that it isn't because there can sometimes be confusion. And this also has to do with the, what we think of as the, maybe the near and far enemy in, in cultivating equanimity as one of the Brahma Viharas. So I have to be clear that, that the quality of equanimity does not in any way involve or point to suppression or denial or attempts to control experience so that we don't have to connect with or contact certain things or feel certain things. You know, these are actually um, responses of, of aversion or fear. But equanimity is rests on this foundation of this, uh, I like to call it a radical intention to be open and connected with life. And it's really the opposite of anything like suppression or denial. In in uh, teaching about equanimity as one of the Brahma Viharas, we uh, we speak about um, what's called the near enemy or near neighbor, which is um, indifference or uh, apathy, maybe, or attitudes, uh, qualities that can feel kind of detached. Indifference feels like it's it's not um, swirled up in, in things. There's a sense of distance and space. But it's disconnected. It's a diluted state. It's a withdrawal from connection and from reality. Sometimes people worry that we talk so much about equanimity and, and as equanimity as being a kind of um, you know movement towards equanimity, a kind of a goal in a certain sense. And people worry that it's pointing to some state or um, situation where we just don't feel anything, a kind of numbness, like the goal of the practice is just to not feel anything anymore. That equanimity means we won't feel anything, good or bad. That life will just be some kind of gray numbness or something. Worry that if we get too much equanimity, we'll just won't even be able to enjoy beautiful, good things or anything. But it's not this, this disconnected, insensitive state at all. It's actually the, it's, it's totally present, deep intimacy, deeply feeling things, but just not, um, not pushed and pulled around by it. So there's a sense of, um, really a radical intimacy, a radical acceptance of the way things are but we're not at the mercy of the reactive mind. So we're fully present, but free. And as this quality develops and strengthens in us, it it really can free up a lot of energy that allows us to respond to life's changes and the things that come from a place of wisdom and balance. So um, you could say that when the reactivity and, and kind of knee-jerk habitual reactions, when those are, when we're freed from those, then there's a lot of, of internal energy that is available for responding to external situations. And, and given the current state of things in the world, which is challenging on so many levels these days, politically and socially, economically, 
things are, are, it's really challenging. And given that, this balance of heart, of equanimity, has probably never been more important or really crucial for us to develop. Because we can see that if the mind and heart are are free of compulsive reactions, compulsive patterns of reactivity, if there's some freedom and space, then our intelligence and wisdom can actually arise and start to function, help us make choices, choose when and how to act if we can act, when it's appropriate, and so forth. And so it point it, it makes it possible that we might actually be able to contribute something to the solution of problems rather than just contributing to them, becoming a part of them. Our actions and the things we choose to do can be far more effective if they're not if they're born of wisdom and clarity than if they're born of reactivity. And there's great protection in life that comes uh, with this quality when navigating the, the winds of change that are always blowing through our life in often very unpredictable ways. And these changing fortunes. And, you know, blame can arise out of a time when we're just doing our best to uh, be helpful and gain can loss, gain can arise out of a time of apparent loss. And the one thing we can count on in life is change. That's the one thing we can pretty much be guaranteed is going to be happening there. And things arise out of causes and conditions that are in great part outside of our direct control. We have some some uh, agency there, but um, but it may start to dawn on us at some point that if we can't control the flow of change and put a stop to all this arising and passing, then we need a different strategy if we're going to be able to find some balance and some sense of uh, empowerment and ease. And so if if we go back to the surfing image that I borrowed from my friend, we'll see that that sense of empowerment and ease and stability is going to come from harmonizing with the changes rather than fighting against them. Actually opening to and harmonizing, living in harmony with the truth of change, with impermanence. So how do we do it then? How do we find this balance so that we can ride the changes, ride the waves that come even just in our life, in a day, in a period of meditation? And so it seems that everything comes down to this quality of mindful awareness. That's the key to everything. That opens the door. The whole practice is opened. That's the key that opens the door to everything. With that quality, with mindful awareness, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. Without it, we're just living out our conditioning. You know, we're in meditation instructions. Basically, what are we saying? Bring this quality of mindful awareness to whatever is arising. Pleasant and unpleasant. Agreeable and disagreeable. 
Pleasant sounds, that sounds okay. But unpleasant sounds like a bad idea. Especially when we're new to practice. It's like, we, I didn't come here to sit with unpleasant feelings. You know, we want bliss and peace. Light, love. That's why we came. <laughs> I didn't come here to sit with painful feelings in the body <laughs> and unpleasant mind states. You know, and we sit down and we're told, okay, unpleasant arises, open to that. Aversion, notice that. Self-judgment and self-hatred, yep, open to that. Aches and pains, difficult mind states, open to those, sit with those. I mean, I've even suggested the possibility that we might make friends with them. And it just seems like a mistake, like the teachers made a mistake. They 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 meant they meant to say something else. <laughs> they left out the word "don't sit with them." <laughs> something, you know. And at first, when we come to practice, it's like we're not good at it. Why should we be? We've been spending most of our life trying our best to avoid these things. <laughs> Why should we suddenly be? Oh yeah, fine, great. I'm all, I'm down with this. No. And then we tend to think that if they're arising, that they're evidence that something went wrong, that either we did it wrong or the practice is, is the wrong practice. And we fight against things. And if our strategy in meditation in our life is to fight against what's difficult and hold on to what we like, it's going to be hard, you know, if we're trying to hold on to something that's slipping away. It's just going to, it's like holding on to a rope that's being pulled through our hands. If we're, we're going to get rope burn, what's the solution, solution if we're getting rope burn? It's only one solution, it's to let go. If we let go of the struggle of trying to hold on or resist, we don't suffer. And when as much, we start to suffer less. When it's unpleasant, we don't struggle with it and we know it and we let it arise and pass and it's not going to destroy our peace of mind. When we stop trying to hold on to and keep pleasant, then we don't suffer when it falls away and changes. We can enjoy and delight in good times. Yes, of course. Pleasant experiences, but we don't fall into despair and unhappiness when it changes and passes away. So you could see this training and mindfulness leading to the balance of equanimity about increasing our ability to connect when it's good and bad and neither of these. And so through this we learn that actually on an essential level there are no good waves and no bad waves, there are just waves. And we train the mind and heart to ride them all. And so this is the potential of a mind that we could say is moving in the direction of becoming our true and good friend. This is all, all well and good, but unfortunately we can't just decide to be that way and we can't 
just because we it sounds good, make it be so. We have to learn this. It's it comes through patient, persistent effort, as we've been saying over and over. And just as we would learn to surf in a simple way, we start in a simple way. So we stabilize the attention with something uh, that we can feel easily, like the body, the breath, something that's tangible and we can start to connect with. We start to stabilize the attention. Surfers, at least one class I saw, the, the instructor would was having people uh, with the surfboards on the beach just practice standing up where it wasn't on a wave, <laughs> it wasn't on the moving water, it was on something relatively stable on the sand of the beach. So we start where it's easier and there's a more chance of finding some stability. And and then we, we learn, you learn, if you want to learn how to surf, you have to be willing to fall off and make mistakes and try it again. You know, it's like when babies are learning to walk, my understanding, I don't, have not raised my own children, but I've been around a lot of them. And my understanding is that babies, part of the learning to walk involves the falling down. <laughs> but if they don't do that, that it's not actually good. They actually need to to learn from falling and and uh, standing back up, getting back up. So that's what we we have to do. That too, we have to fall. It's like all how many times we start over every day, the same thing. We get lost, we got caught, we get swept away, and we come back. And over time, our balance improves and we can stay in a place of stability for longer periods, open to more and more challenging experiences without getting knocked over. There are... Uh, I want to mention a few kind of qualities of mind that we can cultivate and, and um, um, turn towards, you could say, uh, uh, reflect on and connect with that actually encourage and support the development of balance of mind. And I'll just mention a few of these. A lot of them we have mentioned before, so they're not not going to be new, but maybe we haven't thought of them as in terms of being supports for um, equanimity. So we've focused a lot on um, virtue or integrity or living an ethical life. Um, when we live and act from a place of integrity with this commitment to living as harmlessly as we can, not some um, unattainable perfection of that, but really engaging with the precepts, for example, there's a kind of inner strength that arises there. But if our mind is caught in patterns of worry and regret, remorse over things we've done that are causing harm, there'll be storms of restlessness and lack of ease in the mind. And we won't be able to come to balance. We'll be swirled around by that. So we, with a life that's based on integrity and ethical conduct, we can rest in a kind of real self-respect and there's an inner strength that comes from that that supports the balance of mind. And the things we're learning in meditation through developing concentration and calm and um, these these qualities of a non-distracted mind, a great support for uh, developing equanimity. You know, we can go to a gym and we can 
uh, work the body and develop strength and stability in the gym. Here we're working mental strength and stability a similar way. And, uh, you know, I think Jill used the image of, of weightlifting. We have to start with light, light weights and we have to learn how to do it. And um, But with that uh, calm, non-distracted qualities, the concentration and uh, steadiness that comes as we develop the meditation practice, then, then we're not so easily blown about by the changes that come. We can, and we can rest um, on on the truth of experience more easily. Connect with life as it is, rather than how we think it's supposed to be. Jill spoke a lot about um, in the guided meditation today. Um, we're reflecting on our good qualities, and uh, this. Uh, Great Sutta, the Buddha talking to Mahanama. Um, but this is a great place, and it's something that the Buddha did. He told Mahanama not just to do this once in a while. He said, he said, kind of all the time, right? It was at home when you were busy. It was with your kids. It was at work. It was, you know, all the time. Bring this to mind. Bring to mind your integrity and virtue. Bring to mind your good deeds, your generosity. Bring your goodness to mind. It's really um, good because we will see our flaws and imperfections and not good enoughness so easily. That's glaringly obvious to us, but we don't bring our good qualities and our skillful actions and basic goodness to mind very often. But I think it's helpful to see this as just, uh, it helps us to balance our view because our view is not, it's skewed. But by bringing these things to mind, our view comes to a place of greater balance. And balance is this quality of equanimity. So we take a realistic view and we see, yeah, there's room for work here and we don't diminish our goodness or overlook it. So over uh, over the course of our practice, as we really as it begins to at times really deepen. There are times when we open to um, this quality of equanimity on a really uh, deep and profound level. There are times when the mind settles into a state of, of truly deep equanimity. Sometimes it's called high equanimity or it's called uh, six-limbed equanimity because it arises in relation to all six of the sense doors or sense bases. And it's said that the the mind is at this, when it opens in this way and it rests in this state of profound balance that's not moved by any contact at any of the senses, it's said uh, that when this is truly highly developed, it's said to be similar to the mind of a fully enlightened being, similar to the mind of an arahant. It's a kind of uh, unassailable, unshakable, like from that poem, in the face of any contact, any experience. The mind is not moved. Not rigid or tight or shut down, but not uh, assailable. It's a place of uh, really um, deep equipoise. And there's a beautiful description um, in... Um, in the teachings and the Buddha's recollections and 
um, about the night of his awakening. It kind of has this almost mythological um, feeling there. But it's said that the Great One's mind was not moved, and he was said to have been assailed by the armies of Mara. You could say he just had a really bad multiple hindrance attack, like a major one. And so Mara assailed him with these armies of weapons of war, and it said that the Buddha's um, uh, equanimity was so strong that these weapons just all turned into lotus flowers and petals. And it said that, oh, that didn't work, so Mara assailed him with um, temptations and seductions and uh, pleasures and everything that might move him in the direction of of uh, wanting. And again, it didn't his mind was not moved. All these different things. And the last thing Mara assailed the Buddha with was doubt. But who do you think you are? What gives you the right to sit here? And said the Buddha made a determination he would sit until he had uh, attained what could be attained in terms of understanding. And Mara said, who do you think you are? And the Buddha didn't, didn't reply, but it said that he touched the earth. That's this pose on the statue behind us. It's the Bhumisparta Mudra. He touched the earth and it said that the earth shook to bear witness to his right to be there. You love that image. So the Great One's mind was not moved. This is not reserved just for the Buddha. right? This is a reality. The mind can, at times it will open to this deep balance of mind where it is not assailable. Totally present and not assailable. Totally present and free, you could say. Now this is not where we start too bad and we can't just decide that that's how we're going to be. We can't will it into existence or, th- existence or think our way into it. It arises through this willingness to connect over and over. And we learn through that process. And at some point, the mind can open in this way. And so you could say that over the course of our practice in this, walking this path, we are expanding the range of experiences in which we are free and in a state of balance and at ease. And these equanimity in the form of this uh, broad view of observation and this inner strength and integrity, they come together in the practice and are developed. And we find this um, more and more that we can live life from this place of a flexible, responsive balance and strength. So I'll end this evening with a short quotation from the teacher Sharon Salzberg, who we've mentioned is one of the founders of uh, the Insight Meditation Society where we teach a lot. To have the radiant, calm, and unswayed balance of mind that we call equanimity is to be like the earth, All kinds of things are cast upon the earth, beautiful and ugly things, frightful and lovable things, common and extraordinary things, 
and the earth receives it all and quietly sustains its own integrity. It is a state of peace to be able to accept things as they are. This is to be at home in our own lives. We see that this universe is much too big to hold on to, but it is the perfect size for letting go. Our hearts and minds can become that big and we actually can let go. This is the gift of equanimity. So we'll just sit quietly together for just a minute and <clears throat> settle back into silence. Silence. 